when you welcome a, a, re- a recent graduate into your workplace, there's, uh, there's much they need to learn, isn't it? You may be a recent graduate, you may be one of those people yourselves. The company organi- or the organisation, the school that you work for has staked a, a lot on the reputation of those individuals. Now, perhaps some of you older chaps and uh, ladies, you, you look down at these people and you think, there's a great sense of pity, isn't there, as you kind of look at these people. You know, they, they naively waltz out of university with this sense that the work life is going to be an absolute breeze, continuing on from those wonderful university days. Oh, how much they need to learn, you think. If you're a fan of the, uh, the TV series Suits, and I'm a big fan, many of you will know the character called Lewis Litt. Now, he's a senior partner within the law firm, um, of which the whole series uh, is kind of based, and he's this slightly crazy senior partner. Uh, but one of his main loves and one of his main responsibilities is to train up the recent graduates. In no uncertain terms, they are told that they will not make it, that they will not succeed at this firm in law and in life if they're not prepared to give absolutely everything, working all the hours to be the best for themselves, yes, but also for the firm that they now work for. Now, of course, this character, Lewis Lee, is some, some steps removed from uh, most HR directors that you know. Some of you perhaps are thinking, no, mine's worse. But, you know, you, you get the point. He's a few steps removed from kind of reality. But in love for, and he does call them his children, he pushes them hard. And he has very high expectations. But he's right, isn't he? Uh, if you work hard, you are far more likely to succeed. A top surgeon does not become a top surgeon without hard work. A top lawyer does not become a top lawyer without hard work. A top banker does not, and you get the picture. Any profession, wherever you look, any area of life too, we will not succeed without being willing and able to put in hard work. No pain, no gain, the phrase goes. Now, can this be the same when we think about ministry of the gospel the good deposit that we saw back in chapter 1 verse uh, 15 that gospel of truth well I I posit this we shall see we shall see you've got on your sheets there a kind of introductory point guard the good deposit let's just run through what we've seen so far in this letter Uh, I hope this is helpful if some of you missed uh, a couple of the talks Paul so far has been spelling out to Timothy uh, the challenge of ministry really what it looks like to speak of the good news of Jesus Christ if you flip back into chapter one let me run through a few things verse one to seven there Paul does a bit of a retrospect he looks back at both of their lives Paul's and Timothy's And they're both recipients of God's grace in and through Christ. And what Paul does is he encourages Timothy to fan into flame that faith which he has been a recipient of through the grace poured out on him. And then you get to chapter 1 verse 8 following. Paul then challenges Timothy. Really, It's kind of a, it's a stand tall, Timothy. In spite of the struggles of ministry, be willing to suffer as Paul is. He's writing this in chains. So that he might guard the faith, that good deposit that Paul is entrusting to Timothy through his teaching. 
Then at those last few verses of chapter 1, you get to verse 15 and through to 18. And there you get these two motivational examples. If you have a look down, you'll see them. One is the negative, one's the positive. The negative is that of uh, all of those who are just uh, deserting. Deserting the church in Ephesus and and their faith in Jesus. But the positive motivation comes in the person of Anisiphorus, who has refreshed Paul and the church in Ephesus. And so therefore we get to chapter 2. And perhaps plain and simple, it is now Paul spelling out what is necessary for Timothy to guard that good deposit. That good deposit of faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he's to keep going in his ministry, what is he to do? How is he to guard this good deposit? And the question will become clear to us. What do we need to do too? What do we need to do as the vast majority of those around us want nothing to know about uh, the Christian faith? How do we guard the faith in our own hearts and elsewhere? So we get to our first point. Firstly, Paul says to Timothy, be strong in the grace. Look at verse 1 with me of chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Note again, this is probably Paul's most personal of his letters. And look how he uses uh, that phrase to describe Timothy. Now, you, you, my son. Timothy had been called uh, to leadership in the church despite his timid nature, as we see, and into a situation where Paul's own apostolic authority is being challenged day by day by day. Hence the desertions from the church. And it's like Paul is saying this to Timothy. Never mind how you feel. Never mind your inclination, your personality. Never mind what people are saying Never mind what people are doing. As for you, Timothy, be strong. Now, if Paul had stopped there, it would be no better than Lewis Lit from Suits, that character I mentioned, or any, H other, any other kind of HR department boss. You know, uh, However futile and absurd to command Timothy, uh, the, the timid one, Timothy, it may seem... It, Crazy, why would you say these things to be strong to a timid guy like that? It seems mad. Now, this is no call to stiff up a lip, kind of stoical Britishness. The sense in this. Now, if he said to Timothy, just be strong and stop there, it would be like shouting at a snail, be quick. Or shouting at a horse, fly. This is not a call for Timothy to be strong in himself, though, is it? It's a call for Timothy to be strengthened inwardly. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, we are, of course, dependent on grace for salvation. If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 9, you'll see there, let me read it. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He saved us because of his grace. That grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. It was foreordained in that way. Now grace is just an undeserved kindness that we do not, uh, you know, we, we should not receive. But we do from God. And we do so through Christ dying on the cross in our place. And through faith we can be recipients of that grace and be saved for heaven eternally. 
And so we see God's grace saves us, but we also see here in chapter 2 that it sustains us, it keeps us day by day, so that we can serve God in response to his saving grace. Be strong, Paul says. And that is written, that, that, that little phrase there, in what we call the uh, present passive tense. That is, he's saying, be strong and keep on being strong. Be strong, be strong, be strong, be strong. Every day, be strong. Constantly leaning on the grace of Christ. I guess it's, you might picture it. It's a, it's a poor parallel, but it's like some of you, the way you drink coffee. You know, <laughs> the only way you can possibly get through the day, be strong by drinking some coffee. No, you, you get the picture. It's a terrible illustration. Scrap that. But what does grace look like in our lives day by day? Well, Paul suggests in his first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, make a note, look at it later, uh, that the effect of grace was that he was enabled to work harder to make Christ known. I'll read it to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God there is an empowering, enabling uh, uh, Paul in his ministry for God's purposes. But what does that look like for Timothy and for you and me? Well, I guess it's this for Timothy, isn't it? There's, There's nothing. There's no person, there's no personality trait, no responsibility. No task can stop Timothy. Timothy has grace pouring into him like some spiritual intravenous drip. There's always more grace available, whatever the difficulty, whatever the day throws his way or our way. If God calls you to uh, you know, share the gospel with a friend or a neighbour, yes, of course you go knees knocking, heart pounding, don't you? You know, to a colleague over lunch, you want to speak to them about the Lord Jesus and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And you go and you're trembling. But God will pour out his grace. If he calls you to suffer, there will be enough grace. And if he calls you to speak to many people, there will be enough grace. And if he calls you to speak to just a few people, there will be enough grace. John 1.16 tells us that if we put our faith in Christ... Out of his fullness, out of Christ's fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. In Christ, you see, we we receive grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace. Undeserved kindness upon undeserved kindness upon undeserved kindness. In grace, uh, sorry, in Proverbs, God tells us there that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In James 4, verse 6, we're told God gives us more grace. And the point is this, for those that trust God in everything, there will always be grace upon grace, enough power, enough kindness of God to work and help you, grace upon grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, if we're to guard the good deposit of faith, we must be strong, but powerfully enabled by God's grace, trusting him, not ourselves. But that isn't it, is it? There's more. Look at verse 2 if you can for a moment. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
See, not only are we called to be strong, or Timothy here particularly, in the grace that is in Jesus Christ to guard that good deposit, we are also, our second point, to entrust the deposit to the reliable and qualified. The World Cup will be on soon. Some of you are going, oh, some of you, yay, and so on. Uh, but the World Cup will very much be on us uh, by the end of this week. The opening ceremony, like with the Olympics, there's a passing on in it from the previous host to the present host. And then at the end, Russia will pass it on to the Qataris, that famous footballing nation uh, that we're going to be going to the World Cup in a few years' time. Now here Paul is sharing with Timothy that if he's to guard the good deposit, he must entrust it to others. To those who are reliable. Like an Olympic torch or the relay baton, the good deposit of the gospel must be passed on carefully, without compromise, without addition, without subtraction. What has been revealed by the risen Christ to Paul, the apostle, uh, must now be passed on. In a sense, this is true apostolic succession. You probably get that from Roman Catholic kind of teaching uh, in the church, where the power of, uh, is passed from Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope down through the ages. That's what they call uh, apostolic succession. No, the power doesn't reside in those individuals. It resides in the gospel. It's been passed down from Christ to the apostle, to Timothy, and now we are recipients through the word and by the spirit and the power of the spirit. What is entrusted to Timothy is now passed on, entrusted to others. And those others are to be reliable, reliable people. Now, primarily in Paul's mind here must be the elders in the church in Ephesus of which Timothy was working with and was one of. Literally, it reads faithful men, reliable people in our translation. But the principle stands that the gospel must be entrusted to those who will faithfully pass it on. Now, Timothy, of course, has seen this, hasn't he? If you think back to chapter 1, uh, Paul mentions his grandmother and his mother who have passed it on, have trusted him, uh, the gospel to him. He has known the privilege before he is now feeling the weight of the responsibility. And faithfulness is key to this. But it must be held along the side, the ability of someone to teach you see that? Uh, those entrusted to guard the good deposit must be qualified to teach. Qualified to teach others so that they, continue, they can continue to pass on the good deposit of the gospel. See, reliable and faithful teaching is just not enough. We must be able to teach others. Nothing gets me more excited about when the kids uh, run out, uh, from the back there at the end of the service... And then there's a slight competition about who can grab the most biscuits uh, possible and run out before their parents can see, um, and so on. But <clears throat> part of my uh, job I always consider is I always ask one or two of the children um, about what they've been learning, how they've been fed with God's word. I take it that is a bit of my responsibility. I say, what do you learn about Jesus this week? And when you hear a small child explain the gospel to you, However, you know, small and uh, however they do it in their words and their need for Jesus to save them for heaven. However they spell that out to you, well, that makes my week. 
and it should do yours if you get that opportunity and privilege. We are hugely blessed, aren't we, with a team of people who teach and staff who teach others to teach. And that is simply what we're doing. We are guarding the gospel, the good deposit. And likewise, the same is true within the, in the small group leaders and with the elders as well. But we have that responsibility. As parents, you have a responsibility to guard that good deposit. As friends, as husbands, as wives, you have a responsibility to guard the good deposit. Guard it in your heart and in the hearts and the lives of others around you. If Timothy or we are to guard the good deposit, we must firstly be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we must entrust the deposit to reliable and qualified people. Thirdly, then, we get to our third point there. We're to, really, join in suffering for Christ? Well, that's what Paul calls Timothy to. Look at it, verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Over the last few um, Easter holidays, I think I've mentioned this to you before, we've uh, been going to, uh, over to France, just northeast of Paris, uh, to the forest land of Compagnie, um, up there. Very close to the main front lines near the end of World War I, and where the armistice was signed in the clearing in the, field, in the uh, forest of Compagnie. The French general who signed the armistice in 1918 was a man called Marshal Ferdinand Foch. A few months earlier, he shouted this at one of his leading officers. You must not retire. You must hold at all costs. Then, said the officer, that means we must die. And Marshal Foch answered, precisely. Warfare cannot happen without sacrifice. It is horrible and it is a bloody thing. But it's interesting is that Paul doesn't shy away from using this metaphor again and again and again in all of his letters. Soldiering is perhaps one of his most favourite images. Back in 1 Timothy 6, he, he called Timothy to fight the good fight. Uh, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, Paul described as his brother, co-worker and fellow soldier. Uh, in Ephesians 6, what does Paul call people to take up? Uh, the armour of God, soldier, armoury, language again. The images, you see, of uh, the soldier was used by Paul many, many times because soldiers have these amazing qualities. Total obedience. Soldiers have to do or they die. It's complete loyalty. And Paul is saying to Timothy, hold Hold at all costs. With unflagging loyalty. Willing to totally sacrifice. Complete obedience. Hold. Hold the line at all costs. And if he does guard that good deposit of the gospel, it will inevitably, Paul is saying, it will inevitably, as we saw last week, it will inevitably lead to suffering. Despite others deserting, hold like Anisiphorus, Paul is saying. Uh, not being ashamed of the path of the suffering that leads to glory. We see it in Christ. We see it in Paul. Timothy, do the same. Join with me in inevitable suffering, but like the good soldier of Jesus Christ. 
We see in verse 4 that Paul now extends that metaphor further, pushes at it further. Uh, he'll, do, he'll bring us alongside two other metaphors. He's going to use six in total, but the other two are athlete and farmer to make similar points. Let's look at them very briefly as we go through. Verse 4, look at that. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. The point here isn't that Timothy or any of us can't get involved in civilian affairs, anything outside of, you know, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can work, we can have recreation, we can do all sorts of things, it's fine. The point is the single-mindedness here of the soldier. The soldier is set apart, they give themselves single-mindedly to the task ahead. And likewise, we are to give our commander, captain, whatever you want to call, Captain Jesus, our wholehearted focus. We must be dedicated to the battle. The question is, what entangles you? What distracts you from the battle of lies for the kingdom of God? And Paul is instructing Timothy here, and we should hear this, please your commander, Jesus. Can you imagine if it, that French officer responded to Marshal Foch, you know, who was quite a scary character if you read about him. You know, so he said, oh, Marshal, no thank you, sorry about that, but not today, thanks. It's a bit, it's a bit tough out there in the fields of, you know, kind of France, in the trenches. What if he hadn't held the line despite the terrible cost? Well, we probably wouldn't be here as we are today. The key to success of war is a willingness to sacrifice and suffer in obedience to your commander. And the question is, will you? Let's go to the image of the athlete, verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. I love looking into the eyes of athletes, don't you? At the end of like, the race, most Farrah's one over there, great characters. And like, eyes are kind of fire, I'm going to do this, I'm going to win. You know, all, all that's laid on the track, every bit of energy's out there. Focus and fire. And the point is similar to the soldier, isn't it? But it's slightly modified here. The athlete, I guess, is a picture of discipline, of sweat, of, of rigour, and, and just keeping going, keeping going. They race for the prize at the end, but... But no runner was crowned. The point is here that unless they competed by the rules, in those days you didn't get a medal, you got a wreath around your head. So you kind of go, it's no rules, no wreath. You, you just wouldn't get one if you didn't compete according to those rules. And Paul uses this picture to encourage Timothy to run the race of gospel ministry before him according to the rules. Now what does that mean? What it would involve discipline of training himself for the task ahead of understanding the gospel of setting aside every hindrance in his life for that task ahead now let's be clear of course the Christian isn't saved none of us are saved by keeping rules self-discipline we're no longer under the law in that way but the the law, the rules, if you like, of, that we find revealed in God's word, are, show us the way that we live in response to what Christ has done for us in saving us for heaven. And so we compete, we live in response to Christ's work, but we live according to those rules so that we might receive, as Paul is about to say in chapter 4, the crown of righteousness, that we finish the race, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. 
Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Hard work and discipline. But let's be clear, no rules, no wreath. The third metaphor that uh, Paul uses is that of the farmer. Let's look at that in verse 6. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. I'm no farmer, as you can very clearly tell. Um, <clears throat> but I think I probably know enough to say that hard work and farming go hand in hand. Unlike the soldier and the athlete, the farmer's role is devoid of excitement. You don't watch crops grow and go, yay, look at this. It's just not exciting at all. No, no praise, no glamour, no applause. But the work of the farmer is utterly dependent on hard work. A lazy farmer will have little crop. A hard-working farmer will get a good crop and enjoy his share of the harvest. Now, gospel ministry, sharing the good news about Jesus with your friends, your colleagues, your neighbours uh, and people around you is utterly, utterly exhausting. Emotionally, physically, it is hard work, but you will reap what you sow. Bishop J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop at the end of the last turn of the century, in his brilliant book, Holiness, said there are no spiritual gains without pains. But what is the harvest? What is the harvest? As we see, it is the hard-working farmer who has the share of the crop. But what is the crop, the harvest that he is speaking of there? And the image is used elsewhere by Paul. And I think to, to point us to two things. Firstly, the harvest of holiness the fruit of spirit in our lives. And secondly, it's also the harvest of bringing people to know and love Jesus. As, as Jesus himself says in Matthew 9, the harvest fields, the harvest is plentiful. That is, people out there who need to hear the gospel, there are plentiful numbers of them. Paul is saying to Timothy here, to guard the good deposit of the gospel like a soldier, be single-minded, willing to sacrifice yourself in suffering for your captain like an athlete run according to the rules no rules no wreath like a farmer work hard for the gospel bearing fruit a crop of holiness in your life becoming more like christ and a crop of also people coming to know christ as you dare to share the gospel with them empowered by the spirit notice all three have reward do you see that soldier victory Athlete, prize, farmer, crop. And all together they remind Timothy and each of us how to guard the good deposit of the gospel. And if we ended things there, most of us would leave today with great intention, very enthused, probably thinking, yes, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this, I'm going to be, and so on. But how long would it last? Because let's be clear, this goes against any kind of view of the kind of happy-go-lucky. You could just be a Christian and kind of like blend into society and everything would be fine. This is battle and this is toil. Always has been and always will be. If we're to guard the good deposits, if we do that, we're not going to be popular. And so Paul encourages Timothy as we're going to look at this, this last verse. And I think this is brilliant. Reflect for the Lord will give you insight. Look at verse 7. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. There's a biblical balance here. 
I think we all need to consider before we leave. On one side is human, one side is God, divine. And we see firstly that Timothy must reflect. Reflect on what Paul is saying. He's saying suffering now, glory to come. Sacrifice, training, hard work, toil for victory, prize and crop. Suffering now, glory to come. But secondly, notice that he says the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Yes, Timothy, he must study hard. He must work hard. He must be tough despite his timid nature. Empowered by the Spirit and the grace upon grace upon grace. But the Lord his Holy, and by his Holy Spirit will give him understanding. So that he won't retreat. So that he will hold the line. So he will never give up. So he can take the droplet of suffering in this life for the eternal oceans of glory to come. Think for a moment about the standards you set yourself and those recent graduates at your places of work. Think about that. Some of you, I guess, are pretty... have high standards for them, shall we say. And high standards for yourself. Think about the standards you set in what you eat, in caring for your body, Do you expect any less, any less of a standard when guarding the good deposit of faith in your life? Do you think hard work is necessary in every other area of your life with the exception of your faith in Christ and making him known? Hold the line. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Entrust the deposit of faith to reliable, faithful people. Have the expectation of soldier-like, athlete-like, farmer-like hard work. Suffer now. Be prepared for that. For glory, crop, prize later. And reflect on this. You will need to. You will have to. Because this way, as Jesus says, is the narrow way. And it's the way of suffering that leads to glory. And is utterly, utterly alien in our world. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. And you'll need to be convinced of this daily. And that is why you and I need to hear God speak to us daily. As we open up his word and by a spirit working through that into our lives to bring us understanding hold at all costs be prepared to suffer for the glory that awaits and outweighs it all guard that good deposit let's pray as we close Heavenly Father I guess there may be a number of us who feel very much like Timothy here today. By nature, we find speaking of our own faith just very, very difficult indeed. We see around us hostility, people deserting uh, the Lord Jesus, not wanting anything to do with him. 
And yet we hear your call here. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's not in our own strength we go. But rather in yours. Amen.